don't we just, why don't we just start and pray, because I really would love to pray about this, this morning's topic particularly. So, uh, Lord God, I thank you. I thank you for everyone who's here, Lord. I thank you that we have this space to gather, uh, and I just invite your spirit here. Holy Spirit, would you be present? Lord, as we consider your word and consider all the things uh, that you invite us into, God, will we just see the beauty in it, the beauty in your plan, Lord, the beauty in, in what you call us to, Lord, the beauty um, in being disciples, um, in being people who are committed to, to loving all people, to loving you above all else. Lord, teach us to do that body, mind, spirit. With all of, all of that we are, Lord, teach us to love you well and to love our neighbors and, and to care for them well. Uh, God, just, I just pray that as we come in, we would just come into this topic with humility, as, as with all these things, Lord, just, just understanding the complexity of it, Lord, give us, um, give us wisdom, give us love, give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning we are continuing in this series, Good News for Everybody, and I just want to thank you guys for hanging in there. I know this is, this is week six of this series, and I know this is a long series, but um, obviously like these, these things that we're talking about are, are really important, and, and I've heard so many people say, I've never been to church and had this stuff talked about, which is amazing, because when we think about how uh, predominant and how much really ink uh, in, in the Bible is, is, is spilt on, on the question of sexual integrity and, and all that stuff, um, it's amazing that we don't talk about this uh, enough. I think we assume it. We don't really talk about it and explore it and think about the whys and think through it, uh, the complexity of it. So I want to thank you for hanging in there. Um, it's, I, I hope it's been helpful. Um, I've, I've enjoyed doing it, enjoyed also been really challenged in the middle of it. Um, we've been exploring the Christian sexual ethic and really what it has to do with our bodies. You know, how do we live our lives according to this and, and why? And this morning, um, we are diving headlong, you brave people, into what is probably the, the most controversial, at least on its, on, its, on its face, the most controversial topic in this series. That's the question of, like, homosexuality. Um, uh, and I hate to call this a topic or an issue, though, of course, that is how most of us think of it. And that's how we talk about it. It's how it's often talked about in the church, as a topic or as an issue. Uh, but you know who doesn't think of it as a topic or an issue is, is gay people. People to whom this is directly relevant to their real lives. People who experience um, a, a, attraction ongoingly and have for most of their lives to members of the same sex. They don't think of their desire as an issue because it's their real life. It's their everyday lived experience. When we talk about issues generally, what we're doing is we're trying to, and this is not, it's not a bad thing, I'm not moralizing this. When we talk about issues, what we do is we try to put some emotional distance to a topic that we want to analyze, right? We want to do it rationally. We want to do it without our, without our feelings, but really consider the issue. And so we, we call it an issue. We put some analytical distance between us. But that's just really, that's a harder thing to do for people who actually are living in this experience, this day-by-day -day experience of, of, of uh, same-sex attraction. Uh, so let's ask the question, again, because I, I don't want us to, to be emotionally distant from this topic. I want us to enter right into it. Let's ask this question. What does a person who is living with same-sex attraction desire do in response to the Christian sexual ethic? What is, what is the, their lived response? What is, their, what is called of them? Because this isn't an issue for them. This is them thinking about their real life, the life that they're living, and about their real desire, the desire that they feel ongoingly and probably have most of their life. And they're thinking about, well, what is God asking of them 
from, from in, in Scripture? What is, what is God saying to them? Because this is going to have big implications for the life of that person. Someone who uh, is same-sex attracted, who, is, who is, is considering and taking seriously the Bible's teaching on sex and sexuality, is asking real, deep, and personal questions. Questions like these. I have some, and I'd like us to just, I'm going to read them slowly, and just, just you ponder them for a second. Put yourself in, in the shoes of this person. If I accept the historic Christian sexual ethic or the biblical sexual ethic, am I signing up for a lonely life? It's a real question someone who is in this position is going to be asking themselves. If I don't exhibit the uh, typically masculine or feminine traits, can I fit in in a church that generally is composed of heterosexual couples? Where do I fit in in that group of people? Because that's part of what we're asking. We're asking people, yeah, come to church. Be, be, have this new family. W will I fit in here? If I accept the historic Christian sexual ethic, will the church really love me and accept me? Or will they be suspicious of me because of the way that I am and the way I talk and the way I you know, think and the things that I feel? If I'm committed to the historic Christian sexual ethic, uh, am I just supposed to become straight? <laughs> like, what does that even mean? <laughs> or, or, or should I act like I don't have same-sex attraction? Or, or, or will I actually stop having that? And if so, like, what if I just don't? What if I, I, I think that I should and I just don't? If these are real questions people who are living in this are asking, and it's, it's, they have to ask these questions. I think we should ask them too. We should think about them. It's not an issue to someone who's living in it. And we need to be super clear about that. And in the interest of, of clarity, because I don't want you to, to misunderstand me, uh, let me say, I, I really do believe that we can understand that this is more than an issue, that it's a complex thing, that is to say it's an emotionally complex thing, while also asserting that the biblical sexual ethic, that marriage is between a man and a woman exclusively, Lifelong covenanted partnership, like we've been talking about, is true. We can say both of those things at the same time. We don't like to sometimes because it makes us feel a little uncomfortable, but we can say both of those things wholeheartedly. And we've, we've been talking about the, the historic Christian sexual ethic. I put it up here. I try to bring it up every, every, um, every time I get up here just so that we can just be clear on what, what it says. Um, we've tried to go through this series and be clear on this biblical position um, and take seriously uh, the ways in which life um, is, is complicated. So we're, we're trying to really consider the complications here when it comes to this particular aspect of it. Uh, and we live, uh, uh, we'll, we'll get to kind of like thinking through the emotional complexity um, of, of this while fully accepting it. Um, but before we do that, I, I do think we need to pause and we need to ask ourselves a few questions. And we need to ask this question, that is, does the Bible really prohibit all same-sex sexual relationships? And um, you already know what I think, because here's my definition, right? You already know what I think, but I, but I do need to press deeper into the question, uh, because if you are at all up to date on kind of the Christian responses to this, you'll know that there are people who... Um, would argue that scripture does not necessarily imply that, that it does not preclude all same-sex relationships. It's not, it's not a pushback from secular people, right? It's, it's people who are using um, 
who are using scriptures to make this argument. Um, they would argue that in the same way, let's take their argument seriously, they would argue that yes, uh, scriptures do prohibit some same-sex relationships in the same way that scripture would prohibit um, uh, heterosexual relationships outside of marriage. But, but the argument is that um, the scriptures shouldn't prohibit uh, marriage, gay, uh, some form of like, like gay marriage, right? Some equivalent of lifelong committed homosexual relationships. These people would argue that scripture doesn't teach that those are off limits. Um, and I, I do want to dive into this just a little bit this morning. I, I, there's this, there are many books written about this topic, and you can go and, and, cons and consider them and think about them. We just don't have time to get into all of the arguments, but I want to take them seriously. Um, and so let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It's a very a strongly worded passage. And let's see, I'll, I'll just read it right here. It says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, I take this kind of at face value, that it means essentially what it means, but there are arguments that mostly hinge on this, top, this passage and, and a few others like it that would argue that this is not prohibiting all same-sex relationships. And what they'll do, just, again, to like take the argument seriously, what they'll do is they'll look at the, the phrase here translated in English as males who have sex with males, and they'll look at the Greek words, the words that Paul used to communicate this idea, and they will argue that what Paul wasn't, Paul wasn't talking about all same-sex relationships, but he was talking about a specific type of violent homosexual assault, basically, and that that is what's being prohibited here. Okay? So it's, a, it's, it's an argument trying to base itself in Scripture, not just saying, oh, well, forget about Scriptures, trying to look at Scriptures and say, no, 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 Paul is, is talking about something very specific here, and it doesn't apply, they would argue, it does not apply to loving, committed homosexual relationships. And they would argue that Paul really, he couldn't be saying that because he wasn't actually familiar with the idea that there could be lifelong committed homosexual relationships. And so he's just not, he's saying, oh, Paul was an old guy, he was an old-fashioned Jew, he wasn't, he wasn't familiar with these things, and back in the day, they didn't really have that stuff, and so he's not really, he's not really arguing that. Now, if you want to go deeper into the arguments and, and, and some pushbacks, I would, I would recommend that you look at Preston Sprinkle's book, People to be Loved. Um, it's an awesome book, and he really refutes this well. He explains the position and refutes it. But I'll just say this. I think this argument is very weak. It makes, first of all, it makes a ton of wrong historical assumptions that we, that we don't have evidence that there were uh, significant and committed homosexual relationships in the ancient world, and that's not true. We have literary evidence that that was a thing, and Paul was not a yokel from a back, backwards place. He was a very cosmopolitan, well-educated person who would have been aware of this. So, so it, it, it makes the argument um, that, that they, he couldn't have known that. It also ignores the fact that Paul, more broadly, in the, in the first prohibition, addresses the issue of sexual immorality generally, right? So, so 
so if, okay, if you want to say, okay, well, he's talking about one specific violent act of sexual assault, okay, but he says sexual immorality generally is a problem, and doesn't that fall into general sexual immorality? They would say, uh, the, the, people would argue that no, it doesn't. And they would also probably point to Jesus, and they would say, well, does Jesus ever specifically address the issue of homosexuality? And I would say yes, and they would say no. <laughs> and I would say yes, and they would say no, because I would read these two following passages in a particular way. So first of all, Mark 7, 20 through 23, Jesus says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, etc., etc. I'll let you read the rest. So Jesus definitely has a problem with sexual immorality generally. He says it defiles a person. It's going to be a major issue. It's a sin issue. Okay, and then, so then the question is, like we asked with Paul, well, bisexual immorality, does he mean all same-sex relationships? Could Jesus have understood that it's possible for there to be committed marriage-like same-sex relationships? I think looking at Matthew 19, I, I don't see that because Jesus gives me a definition of what marriage is. In Matthew 19, 4, he says, haven't you read, replying to the Pharisees who are talking about divorce, he says, haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and go be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so that they are no longer two but one. Jesus has an understanding of what marriage is because he's a first century Jew formed by ancient biblical literature, well aware of the cultural things that were going on, and yet still asserting marriages between a man and a woman and sexual immorality, any sex outside of marriage is problematic. I, I find it hard to believe the arguments while still believing that Jesus is a person of integrity. Because in order to believe that Jesus was totally okay with this, I would have to believe either he was very ignorant, which he wasn't, and I would also have to believe Paul is very ignorant, which he certainly wasn't, or that he's a liar. And I don't believe either of those two things about Jesus. So I have, so, so I'm, not, I'm not trying to be stringent or rude. I'm just saying I find the arguments trying to say that Scripture does not prohibit same-sex relationships very unconvincing. So, does Scripture prohibit this? I, I think it does. Throughout this series, though, I've also tried to do something, which is to give, as best as I can, some whys. Why is marriage the way it is? I'm going to make an effort to give you a why. Why is marriage between men and women, women exclusively? One man and one woman exclusively. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to make what I think is a very strong argument, which you will not be very convinced by it. Wow, what a great setup, right? <laughs> Set the bar very low. Um, but I'm going to tell you something, um, because um, the reason you won't be convinced uh, by it is not because it's not a good argument. It actually was a good argument for about 1,850 years. People believed it to be implicitly true. When I tell you what I'm about to tell you, people would just say, oh, yeah. That makes sense. But something happened about 1800, about 150 years ago. And that's that a new way of thinking about the world came about, particularly in the ideas of Charles Darwin. 
uh, Darwin had a, the what? What was his idea? The general theory of evolution, right? See, participation, isn't that fun? No, I'm never going to do that to you again. I apologize. I didn't like it. You didn't like it. No one liked it. Um, but in the 1800s, Darwin's uh, theory of evolution, it shook the world, not because it was so well proven or so well argued, but because it made it so that people could, for the first time, plausibly believe that the world as it existed is not here because of order or divine intent, but from a process that God is not involved in. You know what I'm saying? Before Darwin came about, everyone just looked at the world and said, there is no possible way that the world could exist and be sustained and go on infinitely without there having been an intelligent design behind it. It's not just Christians who believe this. Greek philosophers believed it. They believed that there had to be mind behind this matter. Because how could this be were it not for there be some intention and a creator who exists and has a will? and a purpose for the world. But Darwin came along, and he was able to convince people that it might be plausible that there is no design, and there is no creator, and therefore, purpose is not a relevant question for us. Because if there is no creator, then we shouldn't ask, how, what does our design point to about the will of God? Because he says, our design is really accident, chaos. D Darwin explains his uh, argument, uh, well, what happened uh, as a result of his argument this way. In his own autobiography, he says, The old argument from design and nature, which formerly seemed to me so conclusive, fails now that the law of natural selection has been discovered. There seems to be no more design in the variability of organic beings and in the action of natural selection than in the course which the wind blows. He is rightly contextualizing the significance of his arguments and the, the significance that his arguments have had on our world since. To the point where we look at the world and we think we can know nothing about the intention of God uh, by looking at the world. Because the world is just chaos. The world is chance. So... What is the argument that I'm making? I believe that there are two whys if we look at the design of people, uh, and we should consider them first. The first thing that we can notice about nature is that the male parts and the female... I said parts. I, uh, I'm just going to read what I said, because this is, sounds way more not like a 12-year-old. Uh, the male and female bodies are quite naturally suited for one another. Now, previously to Charles Darwin, people would say, yeah, it seems like somebody planned this. But now we think about this and we say, well, there's no, there's no such thing as planning. There's no way to, uh, to it just seems arbitrary. It just so happened that it worked out. I mean, you know. And now I, I, I don't mean to discredit that argument or, or, or mock it. Well, maybe a little bit I do. Uh, but I, I, I find it a little unconvincing. I find it especially unconvincing when I consider this second fact, and that's that there has never been a child born not from one male and one female unifying their genetic code together. It, there is no procreation, there is no sustaining of life outside of that. And that, that is inclusive of modern things like IVF, you know? And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to judge those things and say they're bad, but I, I think we can all say this, that if there were not a male and a female involved in the process, there will not be life coming from it. 
And again, we can dismiss that and say, oh, it just so happens to be. And then we would have to say, it just so happens to be every single time, always throughout history and probably always forever? Just so happens to be? I don't know. That seems like it's encoded. That seems like it's pretty significant. And again, I think Christians have been... I haven't said this yet. I'm going to say this. I think Christians have been a little, little arrogant about this position, so I, I don't want to be arrogant and rude, but I do want to take seriously the fact that it seems as if the world is designed a particular way and to take seriously and consider the question that if God has created us male and female and has instituted marriage, like Jesus argues he has, pointing back to the creation, pointing it to, uh, to, to marriage as a matter of created design, then, then I think that is an argument for the particularity and the importance of marriage as a male and female difference coming together sort of union. Now, if you are a secular person, that will, you will not find that convincing. I can't make you find it convincing. I would say, though, that maybe you should th think about the fact if you are just, in fact, a, a, a modernity snob, because if the whole world before you for 4,000 years would have found that argument at least somewhat interesting, maybe you shouldn't dismiss it quite so quickly. That's my only thought. It would seem, if there was a creator, that he had something pretty specific in mind when he created people. He created male and, and female, male and, men and women to be pretty well suited, well suited for procreation, well suited for sexual intimacy, and God had some intention behind that. Again, our culture doesn't like that. Our culture doesn't like that sort of argument, but I, I do believe it's a compelling argument. Now, you might not be convinced by that, and that's okay. Um, and even if you aren't, um, we still, okay, so if you can't accept an argument from design, we still have to deal with the argument from Scripture. And again, I think Scripture is pretty clear, as we've talked about. Uh, scripture is clear on this issue. But let's return to the initial questions that we asked ourselves at the beginning. Let's return to the, the issue that is a big deal for people, real people, for whom this is an actual relevant and live question. If you are a person who experiences same-sex attraction and you come to the scriptures and you accept it at face value and you decide that you will not, out of obedience to Jesus, you will not do the thing that you desire, which is to have sexual relations with someone of the same sex. The matter of the fact is you haven't yet gotten to the difficult part of that decision yet. Because like we talked about, I, I think most people know that sex is not essential. Most people know, we, we talked a couple weeks ago, sec, most people know that actually they can live without sex, that sex is not actually something that is so essential in life. Most, most people know that. But, but if you become committed to the biblical sexual ethic, you are going to have to ask these questions that we talked about, and those questions come down to something like this. What now? If I accept that this is true, and if I accept that my desires for, for, for same-sex sex will not ever, there's no avenue for me to express that. What now? 
What is my life for now? What is my life going to be like if I do accept that? And it's in this area of what now I think that the church has really failed. This is where we've messed up. This is where we have not given people proper hope, but instead we've actually been homophobic. We need to step away from that and really understand the error that the church has fallen into. Because again, we're talking about people who are 100% saying, yes, I believe what God says. Though it will cost me something quite serious, I'm going to believe and I'm going to trust and I'm not going to do these things. That's 100% those people. We're talking about what do we do with these people? What does it mean for those people right now to be a part of the church? Because the church has wanted to treat same-sex attraction as a simple issue, something that can be solved. And in an effort to simplify the issue, we've ended up hurting brothers and sisters who are giving up everything, far more probably than what we've had to give up to follow Jesus. And we sh- that, sh- that is a big problem. We should, we should not feel okay about that. I don't like shame, but we should feel ashamed about that. And we should repent and give it to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness and look for a new way to support people who are doing something that is costing them so much. And I think we've failed in two ways historically. I'm not talking about I-90. I haven't been here that long, honestly, guys. So I don't know the particularities. I'm talking about the the American church generally in the last 40, 50 years, okay? As as, as a historical thing. And and we can talk about I-90 in a second, and we will. Um, We've failed in two ways. First is that we've simplified the issue by making false promises or assuming false promises. That is that sometimes we've assumed and we've told or implied to people that God, to to people who are same-sex attracted, that God is just going to cure them of same-sex attraction. Now let me say, there are people, there are Christians who were were thought of themselves as, you know, same-sex attracted, experienced themselves, their desires to be fixed on on members of the the same sex, and they came to Jesus and they they will tell you that they no longer feel that way. There are some people, some people, who say that. And room for them too, right? But we also need to take seriously that there are some people who have committed to following Jesus and honoring him with, with their bodies and giving their sexuality over to him who still feel same-sex attraction every single day and they probably expect to to the day they die. And the fact is that in our recent history, the church has been uh, very interested in curing gay people, not caring for gay people, curing people of same-sex desire, not actually helping and supporting people who are committed to honoring God with their bodies and and, and being a disciple. We've made promises that are not true. And we've done it on the basis of misunderstanding where the sin is in the issue. So I want to be super clear. Is having a wrong desire sin for you? When you desire something that you know you shouldn't, is that sin? I don't think it is. When is it sin? It's when you act on it. That's when sin is happening. Is homosexual desire somehow wrong? And is heterosexual desire somehow more okay? If it's both not in keeping with the, the, the Christian sexual ethic? No, we need to be super clear about this. 
I see no promise in Scripture that would indicate that God has to or has promised to take same-sex desire away from people who are trying to honor God and be disciples. But what I do see in Scripture is this promise, that God is faithful in any circumstance in the midst of any temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians. It's almost like Paul had, had something in mind. No temptation has, overtaken you, uh, has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. Sexual temptation is common to all people. And the call that all of us have, no matter where those desires go, is to resist sin and resist temptation. And as we do that, God is faithful. God is near to us. He doesn't need people who are same-sex attracted to somehow, by some means, change their desires in order to be disciples and to be saved. God loves gay people. And he invites them to be disciples who glorify God with their bodies. For some people, they will have this crazy experience of finding that God is God and can do whatever he wants, and maybe they'll have their desires changed. But some people will go their whole lives and just say, God is still faithful no matter how I am tempted, and I am still going to honor him even if it's difficult and even if it's painful and even if it costs me something. And how can we do anything but say, wow, well done, good and faithful servant to people like that. Greg Johnson, I, I said before that we've, we've sometimes um, tried to cure when in fact we should care, and that's an idea um, from a guy named uh, Greg Johnson, and he's just, just, just uh, arguing that there should be a paradigm shift. We should, we should think not about uh, homosexuals as people who need, who need a cure, but who need to be cared for. So let me ask you this question. Let's get a little, little particular to us here at I-90. If a man came here who demonstrated um, stereotypical uh, mannerisms that we associate with, with, with gay men, but they said, but I'm totally committed to, to honoring Jesus with my body, to, to the biblical sexual ethic. If that person came here, what would it be like for them to be in the church? What would our hope for them be? How would we pray for them? How would we support this person? What would our hope be? Would it be that God will change them and make them straight and take away those mannerisms so that they'll fit in and be more like us? Or will it be, Lord, be faithful to this God? Support him as he's doing a hard thing. You know, do whatever you want in his heart. Do whatever you want in his life. Do whatever you want. Will, will we care about this person and get to know them and, 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 care and, and pray for them and love on them and connect them and, and support them and trust them in the church? Because I really think that's what's required of us. If we have brothers and sisters who are doing the hard thing, then they, we need to support them. And I think, honestly, like... And I'm not talking about I-90, because actually I think, I think we get like a B-plus at least, maybe an A-minus in this. I, th I, I think there's a lot of potential for us. I think you guys are like caring people. 
But I, I've been around theologically conservative churches long enough to know that we are suspicious people. You know? And yeah, we gotta like be careful of, of false teaching. But when people are in front of us and they're looking at us and saying, I'm, I'm bearing a burden, but I'm honoring Jesus and I'm doing a hard thing, how can we do anything but just be like, yeah, that's awesome. Let's celebrate that instead of being suspicious. And we were suspicious of people who don't look like us and talk like us and talk of the evangelical talk. I know that as a pastor. I just said, I just said uh, what, like three minutes ago, God loves gay people. And in my heart, I was like, ooh, I hope somebody doesn't un- misunderstand what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, God loves gay people. He loves people. That shouldn't be hard to misunderstand. That shouldn't be misunderstandable. Yeah, he calls us to be disciples. So we need to be so clear on that, but we need to be so clear on the other. And we need to, to watch out in our gospel culture to make sure that we're clear about what we're clear about on and that we're not saying things that we don't mean. That God, yeah, loves gay people if they change, if they stop having those desires because we kind of think they're icky in our hearts. Embracing all types of people is a gospel issue. See, the gospel has, is, and has always been scandalous for two very interesting reasons that almost seem incompatible. But we can't ever lose either of them, or else I think we'd lose the gospel. It's scandalous first because it is demanding. It is demanding. We believe that faith, which we, which we have tend to, to in, our, in our modern world, kind of think of as an inward thing, an entirely inward thing. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago, how that's not good. It just really needs to be something that we live out. Faith requires a real and living response. Living faith has to be lived out. True faith has to be lived out. We know this. James tells us this. Let's, let's read this from James, James 5. Um, James 2, sorry, not James 5. Uh, In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Faith without a lived expression, without resulting in action in the real world, is dead by itself. Wasn't Abraham, our father, justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works. So it's an inward, inward reality, inward response to God with an outward expression every single time. And by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see, that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out uh, by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. There is no conception in the Bible or a biblical understanding that we could have faith and not have it change our lives and change the way that we live. In that respect, the, the, the gospel is very scandalous and it is demanding. Faith is inseparably connected to your real and lived life. It has to be. Because if you give God your whole heart, your life is going to follow. 
because that's the way the heart works. You can't help it because you are a whole person, body, mind, and spirit. And that's why Jesus says, like he says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Got a few more thoughts, but the worship team is going to come up here. Oh, wow. Not that bad. Time-wise, that was going to be much longer. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And if we take seriously what God has to say, if we take seriously the call of, of, of Jesus to be saved, to have life in him, to be renewed, to, to, then we, we also have to understand that that means that we're going to be coming as disciples. We're going to be people who, who love Jesus, and that's going to be reflected and lived out in our lives, and it has to do with how we live in our bodies. So the gospel is scandalous in that respect, and that is demanding but the gospel is just as scandalous because it is for all people. Again, we think of those things like, like they, they couldn't both be. But, but the but Bible makes it clear that they are both true. When the angels announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, they said this, Don't be afraid. Look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Not just straight people. Not just white people. Well, or Jewish people in this instance, right? Or shepherds saying everybody, the rich, the poor, anyone who struggles with any kind of temptation or difficulty, anybody who has taken on themselves any kind of identity, the gospel comes to those people as they are and says, here's a pathway laid before you, a pathway of grace. It's good news. You can come in and know God and be forgiven, be washed of sin and welcomed in. Because Jesus died on a cross to take away whatever it was that kept you from him. To demonstrate a love so great and so encompassing that he was willing to die to make it clear that it's for everybody. That anybody who turns to him in faith can be washed and made clean. That's why 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, when talking about all the things that will keep you out of the kingdom of God, he says this, some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. That list that precedes this in 1 Corinthians is a list of all these things, including that, that sin we looked at before, men who have sex with men, sexually immoral people, but it also includes swindlers and drunkards and all kinds of people. All kinds of people get to come in. They, all kinds of people hear the message of grace poured out. All kinds of people hear about this king who's come to open up his kingdom. All kinds of people hear it. And their response is not, it's not like the drunkards say, I don't have any temptation to be drunk anymore. 
Or the swindlers say, oh, I don't have any temptation to be swindling anymore. They just say, oh, I really believe that this Jesus who died and then rose again and pours out his spirit, I really believe that if I just have faith in him and live after this new way that he's teaching me, that it'll be okay. Maybe not all my problems are going to go away, but he's faithful and he's proven himself to be faithful. He's good and he's gracious and he's proven himself to be good and gracious. He has sanctified, washed, justified all these people in the name of Jesus. Not because they're so great or they solved all their issues, but because they have learned the work of being dependent upon him. We talk a lot about brokenness. But the great thing about brokenness, it's, it's not that God takes away our brokenness. It's that God looks at our brokenness and says, that's exactly what I want from you. I want you to be broken. I want you, want you to be people who, who have difficulties. And I don't need you to fix yourself. I actually just need you to trust me and rely on me and have faith in me and be empowered by my spirit and let me do what I do, the washing, the sanctifying, the cleansing, because I'm faithful. We, we come as broken people, and that's exactly how we come. But man, we can run with God despite our limps. We can just go on running and limping, running and limping, and that's great, and that's wonderful, and God carries us along in the middle of all that. Don't ever think of yourself as, as, as being separate from the grace of God because of the challenges that you have, the temptations that you have, the difficulties that you have. Keep fighting. Keep honoring God because he's faithful and he'll meet you right in that. It's only on the basis of our faith that we come before him. On us looking at him as broken people and just saying, God, would you fill me up? Would you save me? Would you rescue me? Would you wash me? Would you sanctify me? Would you justify me? Because I can't do any of it on my own. It's only on the basis of what you've done that I have anything. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. That your brokenness is now wholeness because of faith. And so if you are a person who has same-sex desire, but you want to come to Jesus, man, the table is wide open, the way is open, the pathway is made clear because it is by the blood of Jesus that you're washed, and it's by the blood of Jesus that you're strengthened, and it's by the blood of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that you're given the strength to keep going and honor him despite the pain and the difficulty, and if the church has made that harder, then the church should repent. That's our mistake. It's not your mistake. God is capable, he's competent, and he loves people. Any who come to him, he washes clean. And I just wanted to end with this blessing. Bless you guys and bless those who are watching and anyone here from 1 Thessalonians 5.23. So God, we just give these words, we speak these words as a blessing, they're your words. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and make your whole spirit, soul, and body to be kept sound and blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. And that's our hope. God bless you guys. Hey, let's...